Good. So it is now officially Pesach time. All right. Uh, as a matter of fact, there is an argument made that the reason that when there are two Adars, like next year, um, that we uh, delay Purim for a month to have Purim be in Adarshani, as we all know, is because we want there to be a consistent way to count that when you get up from Sudat Purim, exactly four weeks from that moment, you're going to have a candle in your hand doing Medikat Chameitz. And by the way, in normal years, that's how it worked. Not this year because of Shabbat, but in normal years, like last year, Purim was on a Tuesday. Four weeks later, after that meal, uh, we were out checking with a candle. Maybe not in the country we thought we'd be in last year, but it's exactly four weeks. So the minute that we clean up from Purim, um, that's, uh, that's when we get, get into it. Of course, there's one very strong argument for making Purim in Adarishon, and that is it gives you two months to get rid of all the junk that came to the house uh, on Purim. But, uh, so, but somehow we have Zrizin who are very zealous to complete that mitzvah in the finest way um, in the in limited amount of time. Okay, um, so the first topic I'd like to take a look at is the first topic that our Vape Sachim deals with, the last chapter of Sachim. So one word about the last chapter, and then we'll get started. The last chapter of Sachim, as I wrote in that email, is an unusual chapter. It's not unprecedented. There are other chapters like it in Shas, the third chapter of Bikurim, most of Masachet Yoma, all uh, Masachet Tamid, which are descriptive rather than normative, although this one is normative, but it's presented as a description, almost like somebody's watching a Seder and describing what's happening. And it walks you in order through the Seder from the beginning to the end. And what's notable about it is what's there and what's perhaps even more notable is what's missing. Uh, and so we'll, we'll take a look at that here. Uh, but I want to start off with a comment that was made by Mayor Ish Shalom, otherwise known as Mayor Friedman, back in the 19th century, one of the great uh, Chokrim of Chazal. And he put out a commentary on the Haggadah called Meir Ayin, and it's in Source 1. I'm going to use this to kind of launch us in. But before doing it, I want to share a vort. A vort. And I promise you over the course of the next four weeks, Vert Lach Galore, lots of little tidbits that you can take with you to the Seder. All their shoe recorded, so if you miss it, you can always just replay it. Um, and it's as follows. Um, this will be a little interactive, so speak up. Uh, at the Seder, how many matzahs do we bring to the table? Three. A few matzahs brought to the table, correct. Uh, and... Um, you should know that there are those who have the custom of two, like we do, like following the Vilna Gaon, but most people bring three to the table. And you bring three to the table, and we have uh, one of the many, many unusual customs we have at Pesach is to name our food. Most people don't name their food, you know, except Joe is my cup of coffee, but otherwise, I don't really name food, but we name our bread. And what do we name the bread? Kohen Levi. Kohen Levi Israel. I don't know. We don't, don't have any Levim in this year, do we? But... Uh, but we got Kohanim galore, right? You guys are the top matzah. All right, so what do we do when the three matzahs are brought out? What do we do almost immediately with them? Break the middle matzah. Break the middle matzah, and we hide it away. And at the end of the Seder, we bring it out and eat it, right? Can I tell you why we do this? I can tell you exactly why we do this. Halacha, the most we've seen. The children interested. All right, so yes, but I'll tell you the real reason. <laughs> right, Marcia, stay with me. Stay with me. I got my thumb, my fingers crossed. Now, um, 
and that is because the middle Mots is Levy, right? Yeah. Who's the most famous Levy in history? Moshe Rabbeinu, no question. Biggest Levy, got the big L on his uniform. He's, he's L number one. All right. Now, what happened to Moshe Rabbeinu when he was a little baby? He got taken away from his family. And uh, he was buried away into a basket. And then he, at the end, he was rescued and brought out. So in order to do that, we take the matzah and we hide it. And we take the levy matzah and we break it up and we put it in a basket and we take it out at the end. How nice. Okay. Now, what? I like right. that. Yeah, good. Okay. Now, what I just did was a vort. A vort means a word, right? It's something that they don't have a medicine for removal, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's an idea, right? And, um, and they don't have a vort remover, but um, they, it's, it's an idea. And it's an idea which, by the way, is a true idea. Moshe Rabbeinu is the most important levy. And Moshe Rabbeinu was taken away from his family. And he was buried into a basket. And he was saved. And by the way, that entire story of salvation was deliberately foreshadowing Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is why we have the Midrash about Bat Paro's arm extending out supernaturally. That is foreshadowing the outstretched arm with which God redeemed us. Um. So it's all, it's all real. But, it, but I'll tell you where it's not real. Marsha's absolutely right. The reason that we do this is to make the kids curious. And so kids will say, why are you breaking the matzo? Why are you hiding it? How much are you going to give me for it? Et cetera, et cetera. And that keeps them involved and keeps them awake and keeps them interested in what's going on, even if only peripherally. And they have fond memories of getting some sort of prize for whatever it is. Whatever the thing is, it's about getting kids interested. What I just did was something that we actually engage in all the time, which is to confuse and 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 um, switch the role of reason and explanation. So I want to show you this comment of Friedman because when we get into the Arbacosa, you'll see why this is so central. This is after he introduces the Arbacosot and he quotes a lot of different explanations for the Arbacosot, for why there's four. All this proves is that the practice of four cups is a longstanding practice. And once the practice was there, they enhanced it, they adorned it, they beautified it with explanations. And this is a line I recommend. You tattoo it on your brain. It's a great line, and it's central to so much of, of our understanding of practice. Forever, the explanations are not the reasons for the practice. The practice is the reason for the explanations. It is a great line. As I, you guys all have the, the source sheet. And the idea is that if you have a certain practice, and then there's some sort of an explanation for it, what it represents. So I'll give you one other quick example uh, from the Seder, which we're all familiar with. Um, then don't make the mistake of thinking that's the reason that practice is there. The practice is there for some other reason. And then added onto it are a whole host of explanations that are there to enhance it, to beautify it, and more than anything else, and there's a line he didn't use, but I'm going to use it, to turn every practice at the Seder into a teaching moment because the entire evening is about pedagogy. It's about teaching. And so we use every opportunity, every custom. So I'll give you one other example. Uh, we all know that towards the beginning of the evening, we 
we take uh, some vegetable and we dip it in what? Salt water. Salt water. Why do we dip it in salt water? Why not? Uh, tears. Okay, good. So tears. I grew up with that. I grew up, by the way, I grew up in my house. We did parsley. So I found out my family custom used to eat potatoes and we reverted to that. But we grew up with parsley. So why parsley? Because the spring. And why salt water? Because the tears. I said, okay, very nice. And then you start learning and you realize that the reason that we dip it is one of two things. Either it's an hors d'oeuvre in order to give you something to eat while you're yeah. waiting, right? Or the clear explanation in the Mishnah is that it, in the Gemara is in order to, like Marcia said, in order to keep the kids curious and let them see something weird. And the proof is in the pudding because what's one of the questions and in some versions, the very first question the kids ask is, why do we dip tonight? Why do we do twice tonight? So it's clearly there to provoke a question. Now, once we're, over, once we're already dipping, so then we, aha, this is the representing throwing the children into the water. And this is uh, the, the tears of the servitude, and this represents spring. And those are all, by the way, valid messages, not to take away from them. But it's important to note what the difference is between the cause and the, the antecedent explanation, which enhances it and beautifies it. Okay, so I just want to put that in, as, a, as, a, as a preface. In item number one, before you read it, I, I, I read Siba as Saba. Oh, okay. The, the, the yeah. drush isn't the grandfather of the minhug. The minhug. Oh, that's very good. Is that's the a good example. Of the that's a good example of turning it into a drush. That's very good. Okay. <laughs> can I just can I just ask, Rabbi? Sure. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, for pretty much all the mitzvot and mishpatim in in uh, the Torah, um, in in pretty much everyone except for a few isolated instances, there's no rationale given. For the mitzvot, correct. So while we drosh out a gazillion reasons why it might make sense, how we interpret it, how we apply it, when we talk about the rationale, uh, we're just—are we not simply supposed to accept the mitzvot as coming from God? Period. Right. Okay. So I have three pieces of an answer very quickly. The first thing is that what Kurt's talking about is a tremendous area of rabbinic inquiry that really starts in the post-rabbinic period. And it is a, um, an area of research, if you will, called Ta'ameha Mitzvot, which really starts with the Rambam. It starts with Sadia, and it goes till today with people arguing this point back and forth. And in the case of, for instance, of Sadia, of distinguishing between some mitzvot where the reason is clearly justice or something of that sort, and other mitzvot which are more ritualistic that we can't understand, what, we, what he calls disciplinary mitzvot, shimiyot, um, all the way till today, agreed, that's A. B is that what you're referencing is mitzvot from the Torah. So you're right that when God says, take a red cow or a brown cow, whatever it is, and burn it burn it up, sprinkle, kill it, sprinkle the blood, et cetera, et cetera, paradumot, kind of the Shabbat, we don't know what that's about. God said to do it, so we do it. And we know that if we don't do it, we're not Tahor. And if we go into the Azara like that, we're familiar with the system without understanding the, the reasons. Then there are people who suggest reasons. Look at this Forno in, in Hukat, beautiful explanation. But we don't know the reasons. And we can't pin them down. And that, of course, is a dangerous thing that people do when they say, I know the reason. This is part of what the reform movement argued in the 19th century is we understand the reasons for some of the mitzvot from the Torah. Those reasons no longer apply. 
Hence the famous menu at the dinner at the Pittsburgh platform, right? It's famous, famous piece. So with every possible non-kosher food there. So that's, I agree. But now we're talking in the realm of mitzvot de Rabbanan, rabbinic mitzvot. And rabbinic mitzvot, the exact opposite uh, applies. Not only is there a reason that's accessible, but the reason is challengeable and, and is up for discussion. And should it be done this way or that way based on what we understand the reason of this to be? What happens if you light a ner Hanukkah in your house and then carry it and put it outside? Have you fulfilled the mitzvah? That depends. And how we define the mitzvah. So when it comes to rabbinic mitzvot, not only are they accessible, but they must be within our frame of reference. Okay, I hope that mm. So what we're talking about now is not why do we eat matzah, agreed. Not even why do we eat maror, which in our day is derabbanan, but I'm talking about arba kosot, which is clearly rabbinic. And some of these other things, which are later customs. The, the, the dipping is a custom in the times of Chazal. Breaking the matzahs after the Gemara doesn't know about breaking the matzah. It's later. So that's what I'm saying. So you bring up a good point, but I want to make that distinction. Okay. So um, we're going to come back to these psukim when they're relevant. But, um, but two things that, come, that emerge from these psukim, in case you don't have time to come back to them, two things that emerge from this collection of psukim is that from the fifth selection, which is a pasuk in Yeshayahu, it's clear that the evening of Pesach is perceived as an evening of song, song, shira. And what's developed in Chazal is that shira, singing to God, is done with a glad heart. It's a time of simcha, and it is done over wine. It's done over wine. And I'm going to bring you a, an unusual source, two unusual sources, but they're, they're, they're unusual, but they're not unusual. I'll explain what I mean. When we see literature, which is not part of our tradition, this is a general methodological point. When we see literature, which is not part of our tradition, uh, not part of our traditional chain of, of literature, Mishnah, Gemara, Tosefta, Yerushalmi, Babli, etc. Not part of that. How do we treat it? Well, the answer is that if it's a valid historic document, it tells us something about history. And if it's a valid testimony about something or somebody, that tells us what was going on. We're not going to learn halacha from there. We're not going to learn theology from there. But for instance, if we read a Midrash in the Church Father, I'm not going to take that midrash seriously, but what I am going to take seriously is that that means that in that time, in the third, uh, in the third century or so, or fourth century, there was that was the kind of things that people were in there were talking about. So if I find that midrash in the fifth century in a, in a collection of Rishon Rabbah, I'll say, "Oh, this is older because I found it in an earlier source." Doesn't mean that in the earlier source it's a true statement, but it's historic. Doctrine. Okay, I'm saying that because of the following. We're going to look at two sources for what we call Second Temple uh, literature, the period of Bayit Sheni, which is uh, before <coughs> Mishnah. So you take a look at it, and you see that uh, the first selection, which is source eight, is from a book that we call Sefer Hayovlim. Sefer Hayovlim is the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees is part of the large corpus of texts that were in one fashion or another 
vied for inclusion in the Jewish library, if you will, and didn't make it. And there were books that in, in some cases, Yovlim is a good example, the best example is Ben Sirah, uh, were books that were candidates and vied to be included. And, there were, and these were all composed by religious Jews and they were books that were um, considered by at least some groups to be canon, canonizable, uh, holy writ. Uh, and if to remember, the dispute about what's included in Tanakh doesn't stop there. There were groups, Jewish religious groups, through the period of the Mishnah that did not accept Megillat Esther or did not accept Kohelet as that they should be part of Tanakh. So it's not like a slam dunk. Moshe Rabbeinu came down with a list of 24. And so the Book of Jubilees, fascinating book, composed somewhere probably in the third or second century BCE in Israel. Uh, purports to be the following. It's just by itself a really, really interesting book. It purports to be a book that was given by a malach to Moshe Rabbeinu on Harsinai. And as its name implies, it is a chronography. Book of Jubilees retells the story of history from creation all the way till Moshe Harsinai and puts it into a time frame of Jubilees. So in the third Jubilee, in the fifth Shemitah, in the fourth year, in the third month, on the 22nd day, that da, 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 happened. And it includes many, many, much Midrashic material woven into its retelling of the story of Avraham. And by the way, in there, Avraham destroys his father's idols, the earliest mention we have of that. So there's a lot of early material that later gets incorporated into Midrashim that we're familiar with. In the in Sefer Yovlim, this is from the critical edition of Sefer Yovlim that was published a number of years ago by Kana Verman. Uh, I took the text, I made sure to you got to copy these things right, and it's a translation from the Greek because since we didn't accept the book, therefore it was buried. It was Nignaz, as we say, and it ended up um, not used within the mainstream of Jewish life, but it was picked up by the Christians. And they had it in translation in Greek. And so it was around for a long time. And sometime in the 16th century, Jews suddenly discovered, hey, there's this whole other part of Jewish scripture that's not in our Tanakh that they have. And ever since the 16th century, there have been attempts to translate these books into Hebrew until in the middle of the 20th century, we suddenly found some of these books in part in Qumran, in Hebrew. Very cool little close, uh, circle closing. So in any case, Sefer Yovlim, this is a translation from the Greek, um, describes at the very end, because Moshe's on Arsini now, describes, uh, kind of expands on, um, on the motif of Yitziat Mitzrayim, which they've just experienced. And the Malach is telling Moshe in this. And again, I don't, I don't take this to be true, but they wrote it in the third century BCE, so they're reflecting their reality. They said, remember the mitzvah that you have to keep to keep the Pesach. Remember what it was like to sit in the homes, because it just happened. Sit in the homes and eat the Pesach and put the blood on the door, etc. And then watch this description of Mitzrayim that night, the night of B'chol Yisrael, the highlighted part. Yoshvim v'ochlim et Pesach. They're sitting and eating the flesh of the Pesach. V'shotim yayin. What are they doing? They're Imbibing. Drinking wine. And they're praising and extolling the God of their fathers, Hashem. Right? And they're ready to leave. So notice that in this very early description of the Pesach, which is from a time 
when the Beit HaMikdash was around. So that means that whoever this author is in Yerushalayim, we think it's uh, in Yerushalayim, that the author of Sefer Yavim Yerushalayim, or the authors, are describing essentially um, what Pesach looks like to them. And what do they see? They see people eating the Pesach and singing to God and wine. By the way, notice what's missing from this description. Keep it in mind as we go to the next source. The next source is a little bit later, but also still in the Second Temple period, and that is Philo. So I think you all know who Philo is. Philo of Alexandria um, lived right around the turn of the millennium. He was a student of Hillel, by the way. Philo was a great philosopher, prodigious writer, evidently didn't know Hebrew because all of his commentary on Torah seems to be taken from the Septuagint and from the Greek translation. In any case, uh, in one of his books, which is on the special laws in which he sort of expands on the Aserita Dibrot using them as sort of an outline, he talks about the holidays and he talks about the Shabbat, et cetera. And he talks about after the feast of the new moon, that's Rosh Chodesh, comes the fourth festival. Now, what you're hearing now is an eyewitness description of what Pesach looks like in the first century BCE when there's a Beit HaMikdash around. We have very little, actually, we have next to no eyewitness testimony of such a thing. So this is valuable. That of the Passover, which the Hebrews call Pascha, okay, on which the whole people offer sacrifice. And it goes through the issue of the Korban. And those who are to share in the feast come together, not as they do to other entertainments to gratify their bellies with wine and meat. In other words, it's not a bacchanal but rather but to fulfill their hereditary custom with prayer and songs of praise. And again, the central feature of the evening is singing songs of praise. By the way, somebody I think said it, what is missing from both of these descriptions? Carbon Pesach. Matzah. What's in there? Carbon Pesach matzah. is both. What? Matzah. Uh, okay, well, we can assume matzah along with the Carbon Pesach. You, the, the big thing that's missing from both of these descriptions up to wine no there's wine in both of them one one mentions we're not we're not just drinking wine but what's missing from both of them they're gathering it together they're celebrating and they're singing songs of praise there is no haggadah hmm. oh there's no questions there's no answers there's no storytelling there's gathering feasting and singing songs of praise to god and there's wine okay so you want to keep that in mind this is a description now let's get to our mishnah and you'll see why i picked this what you're looking at here on the right side is the type text of the, you know, we always use Kaufman now, the, uh, the best manuscript. On the left side is a shard of a manuscript, just a, interesting to see. Um, can anybody tell where it's, where it's from, this manuscript? Uh. So, it, it, it's something that I didn't know until recently either. You see the the code down at the bottom? Everybody see it there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, this is the marking in the library. Uh, T.S. is Taylor Schachter. Oh. Taylor was the fellow who helped uh, from, uh, support the sponsor, the Geniza research, and Solomon Schachter was, of course, the guy who did all the work. So the whole Geniza collection from Schachter is, is labeled T.S., and then EI-57 is the name of this particular Geniza manuscript, which they found, which is a shard of our Mishnah. And you can see parts of our Mishnah. Anyhow, I just I brought it just so you could see it. It's kind of cool to look at 
a, a document which is maybe a thousand years old uh, and, and, and see the, the shape that we found it in. And it's our Mishnah. In any case, our Mishnah opens, Arab Sachim, uh, you're not allowed to eat on Arab Pesach before dark, until, until dark, from Mincha, which Mincha, what is it you can't eat? Okay, uh, discussions. Even a poor person uh, should not eat until they actually recline, which means they have to join the Seder. And they should not give him any less than four cups of wine. Even if he's collecting from the soup kitchen, he still gets four cups of wine. Okay, very good. Which means from the get-go, the very first Mishnah of Reb Sachim telegraphs for us Okay? Now, why are there Arba'akosotzliyayim? So I don't know. I don't know. You could say we want him to have a lot of wine because he'll be very happy and he'll celebrate and he'll thank God. So four cups is a good number, maybe. Except that the Mishnah actually tells us. Because if you take a look at the Mishnah, and I've, I've given you the highlights in the first eight Mishnayot, which, by the way, there's only nine. There's <laughs> actually more in this in Kaufman's counting. But this is most of the parak, but just the highlights. What do you see in red? The Mishnabet, the Mishnadalit, and then a Mishnachet. What do you see in red? I am coast, 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 right? So the entire Seder is presented in the Mishnah with an outline or framework of cups of wine. For a minute, I'm going to ask you to forget instead, I want you to think finish. I have to figure out a better tune. Right? Kosrishon, and then Kiddush. Then, da -da -da, and then we pour Kosheni, and that leads to the questions, and the Father teaching, da -da -da -da, and it goes all the way to starting the Hallel, and then drinking the wine, Geula, then the meal, and you have the third coast, and then the fourth coast, and you finish Hallel. So from the perspective of the Mishnah, the Seder is not 15 simanim. The Seder is Arba Kosot. So where does the Arba Kosot come from? But what, what's to make it even more interesting and more intriguing is to look at the Tosefta. Look what the Tosefta does. And we've already spoken a number of times about what the Tosefta is. Look at the Tosefta does in the first halacha. Remember in the Mishnah it said, you have to give the poor guy Arba Kosot, even if he collects from the Tamchui, that's it. Look what we have here. They have to have at least a Revit of wine, however, 12 ounces, how much it is, three ounces, right? Whether it's pure wine or diluted wine, whether it's new wine or old wine, Rabbi says it has to at least look like wine and taste like wine. Okay. In other words, what is it Tosefta giving us? Way more details about the wine and the new opinion of Rabbi Huda. We didn't hear that in the mission. The Tosefta is ignoring the Tam Chui, but it's giving us a lot more details. But then look what happens. Mazgulo Kos Rishon, the next halacha the Tosefta is you pour the first cup and then the kid asks, I'm sorry, the first cup and then Kiddush. And that's it. We never hear about more cups of wine. That whole structure in the Mishnah, one, two, three, four, isn't here. I mean, I could have given you a little Tosefta and just left it blank, but I left it blank by not putting it in there. Look at it on your own. I see some, something, something odd. Okay. 
I'm going to show you one other passage from the Tosefta, which is odd, and a comment of the Yushalmi based on it, which is even odder. But let me just start by posing a question to you. You're supposed to drink four kosot, okay? Uh, sorry, Nigel, what's your father-in-law's name, Eliyahu? Eliyahu ben Yosef. Ben Yosef, okay. So Eliyahu ben Yosef, in, in honor of his memory, I'll ask you this question, I'll give you this question. What happens if you don't, you don't know if you're going to make it to the end of the evening? So you line up four cups of wine right there at Kiddush. You make Kiddush, you drink one, two, three, four. <laughs> Have you fulfilled the mitzvah of Arba Kosot? No. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, no. Okay, so let's hear it. Why yes, why no? You'll be gratified to know that it's actually your dis discussion is in the Gemara. Your positions are both in the Gemara. So feel good. That's great. So now I'm going to throw a wrench, a monkey wrench into the works. This Tosefta later on in our parak says the following. B'nei ha'ir, people in the city, she'en lehen mishi yikrata halel. Nobody can read halal for them. Meaning you're at a table and nobody knows halal. But there's no sidurim. Doesn't exist. And there's nobody there who knows how to read halal. Holchin leveta knesset. What do you do in the middle of the seder? Middle of the Seder, what do you do? Eat your meal. Go to Shul. Go to Shul. Get up and go to Shul. The Korean Parak Rishon, and then what do they do? In the Shul, somebody there who knows how to read, reads the first chapter of Hallel. And then we do what Nigel said. We go home and eat and drink. Then what do they do afterwards? Go back to Shul. Go back to Shul. And then you read the whole thing. Now, everybody here knows how hard it is to get people back to Shul. Which is why we have Mincha Mariv instead of Mincha Mariv, right? Mincha at two o'clock and Mariv at seven o'clock. It's Mincha Mariv at five forty, whatever. Okay. So if Charlahan, if it's impossible to get them to do that, Gomrim et Kulo Hahalel. What you do is you bring them to Shul and you do the whole Halal, then you go home and eat. You've never seen this happen. I promise you've never seen this happen. I've never heard of anybody doing this in our day and age. But this is what it says. If you have nobody there who knows how to do halal, go to shul, get somebody from the community to come, and he leads halal, and do the whole halal, and go home and eat. And that's the Zeta. When do you drink the cups? The Tosefta doesn't mention that. All right? Because after all, what's the fourth cup drunk on? Halal. What's the second cup drunk on? Well, we have to see. But now look at this comment of the Yushalmi, and this comes back to Nigel and Abe's Machloket. Here we go. Source 13. Can you drink them all four at one shot? doesn't mean like, like you know, you're doing shot. It just means just four cups and without it being part of another stage. At one point. Rabbi Yochanan said the following. Halel. Im shma'an knesset yatsa. If you hear the whole halal and shul, you're yotze, right? Which means that, and now we're going to get to a custom that many of you have. If they say halal in shul, and you heard halal in shul, you're yotze, which means you don't have to say it at seder. That's what Rabbi Yochanan said. Adam Ra, filushtan So what does Rabbi Yochanan say? He says, I vote with Nigel. Rabbi Yochanan says, I like Nigel here. And that is that if you drink all four at one shot, you're yotze. You understand this is strange, of course. 
How are the two connected? Think about that. I asked the question, if you drink all four cups in one shot, as opposed to being at four junctures of the Seder, Abe says you're not Yotze, and Nigel says you are Yotze. Okay. And Rabbi Yochanan says, since, sorry, since, with Gemara says, since Rabbi Yochanan said that if you hear hollow and shul, you're Yotze, it means you don't have to say hollow again, must be that if you drink all four cups at one shot, you're Yotze. Can anybody explain how those two things are connected? How does A lead to B? I mean, it's a, it's a strange thing that you show me say. What about if you have one very large cup and you put all those four cups, the amount from each four cups into that one cup, and you drink it all at one shot? Yeah. Well, are you, are you asking what the halacha would be? Yeah. Yeah. So that would still be one cup. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, although I know people have tried that four times. <laughs> there seems to be a combination requirement where you need to hear halal and also drink the cups. Right. And perhaps even like a gap okay. between the cups if you haven't yet heard halal. Good. So then why would the fact that if you hear halal and shul, you don't have to say halal again, why would that then lead to the result that if you drank all four cups at one shot, you yotze? Like, how do the two... Because you've fulfilled that requirement. You don't need to wait. Okay, good. Fine. So you're saying it's an independent requirement of four cups. Ideally, it's done on halal, but since halal is already done, you now just do the four kosot. Okay, could be. Let's see how it develops. All right. Let's take a look. So I want to start with, with the bavli. And the bavli, we're going to skip around because of uh, you know focus here, but I want you to see the whole thing. The main discussion of the Arba Kosot in the Bavli is on Kufchet and then on Kufyot Zion. So on Kufchet, we have Rabbi Shuvan Levi, very familiar to us. Remember him from mm -hmm. last week? Rabbi Shuvan Levi, you said women are chayev in Megillah because Here he is again. Nashim kosot Now, by the way, you notice that Rabbi Shuvan Levi is talking now about an obligation of drinking four cups. The truth is, until he said that, we never saw it. What did we see in the Mishnah? We saw in the Mishnah that you have to make sure the poor guy has at least four cups. We saw in the Mishnah and Tosefta that, uh, that each cup has a function. We never heard about an obligation of four cups. We never heard that. We're so used to it, we don't notice that it's not there. And now Rishuvan Levi comes on and says, every is chayav in arba akosot. And now um, Shmuel gives us three halachot about the nature of the wine, including, by the way, shtan v'vatachat yatzah, if you drink all four cups at one shot, you're yotze. Rava comes along and says, well, you're kind of yotze, kind of yes, you fulfilled one component, but not another component, which means you're both right. Okay, good. Now, um, I want you to see this next piece. Now, by the way, I want you to notice how strange this statement is. means we're introducing a brighter. A brighter from the times of the Mishnah. Everybody's chayav in these four cups. Echad anashim, echad nashim. Men and women. Why is that a weird statement? Because Rabbi Shuvan Levi came along and said, women are chayavot in Arba Kosot. Wait, 
if the bright already said that everybody's high of Kosot, what's what we should Levi doing? What do we need him for? And this gets weirder because the bright says, Tinokot doesn't mean little infants. That's in modern Hebrew. Tinokot in, rabbi, in rabbinic language means children, school children, for instance. What do little kids get out of wine? It's not good for them. They, also, they, don't, they don't appreciate it, they don't enjoy it. Rather, we give them little candies and stuff, and they'll ask questions, etc., which means. This statement seems to not be about Arba Kosot. This statement seems to be just about how you celebrate Yontif. Everybody has to celebrate Yontif with wine, including kids. Kids, what's the point of kids? Give kids candy. And that leads, of course, to the famous halacha and the Rambam, that you have to elate your family members with things that are appropriate for them, age appropriate, gender appropriate. All right, and it's probably politically incorrect to say, but too bad, gender appropriate, um, that they have uh, things that they will enjoy, right? Okay. Um, and now to, to shake things up one more level, and then we're going to start. But so far, it's just a lot of shake up. The Gemara and Kufiyot Zion talking about um, the third cup. Says the third, when you pour the third cup, you bench, right? We're familiar with that third cup, you bench. There is a dispute in Masachat Brachot about whether or not when you bench, you have to have a cup of wine. It's a machloka between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, and you'll never guess what Beit Shammai says. You don't need. That's right. You did guess. Good. <laughs> right. Counterintuitive. <laughs> that you don't need a cup of wine, and Beit Hillel says you do. Right? So watch this. So Ravina turns to Rav and says, It sounds from the Mishnah that says you pour a third cup and, and say it on Birkata and say Birkata Mazon on it. It sounds like you're ruling that Birkata Mazon needs a kos. Okay. The rabbi said you have to have four cups, like a nobleman. So since we have to have four cups, let's use them for a mitzvah. And now we get to the cart and the horse. What's driving what? We started this year with a question. Of what's driving what? Is the practice driving the explanation or the explanation driving the practice? Now we get to a different question, but it's the same issue. What's driving what? Is Birkatamazon driving the need for a coast? That's Ravina's position. You're benching, and since you ruled that when you bench, you need a coast, you may have a coast, which means, by the way, that every item you do at the Seder that needs a coast, you have a coast, which, by the way, means there's no such thing as four cups. I'll say it again. <clears throat> There's no such thing as four cups. There's Kiddush needs a cup. There's Hallel at the end of Magid needs a cup. You have to sing to God with, with wine. We're going to see that in a minute. There's Benching needs a cup because Benching needs a cup. And there's Hallel at the end needs a cup. Happens to be four. And now I'll show you that at least at some point that was accurate. Okay. The Gemara here, but Rava disagrees. Rava says, no, the rabbi said you have to have four cups. Four cups, so since you have to have four cups, use each one for mitzvah. Use one for halal and use one for benching. Doesn't mean whenever you bench, you need a cup. But you have to have four cups, so connect it to a mitzvah. Very nice. Where do you get halal needs a cup? Oh, we're going to get to that. Excellent. Beautiful. That's going to be source, seven, source 18. 
And that's kind of the, the, the turnaround, the, the whole roundhouse on this year is this. So the, um, the Gemara quotes a bright, this is Revi'i Gomer Alava Tahalel Vomer Halel Hagadol Divrei Okay? The fourth cup, you finish Halel and you add Halel Hagadol. That's the 26 Kilo Lam Chastos and then Nishmat and all that. Is not nishma, nishma, something else called Hashir. And some people say, actually, say means more than David, right? That's if you're having a Seder at Shalos Sodas, just kidding. Okay. However, this same Gemara in, in the Kaviat Vatican, which is evidently a better manuscript, has one word that's different, and this changes everything. What word is different in this version? Source 17. Chamishi. It says, it says that you have a fifth cup. And what do you say on the fifth cup? And some people say you say Mizmama David. Now, how's a Ritarfun coming up with a fifth cup? You have to have four cups. How can you have five cups? And this is, but Koseliao is one that we don't drink, and not everybody has only one on the table. It's not for every person. He's saying you pour a fifth cup for each person and you drink it. And that's halal agadol. How do you get a fifth cup? Okay. So I'm going to skip this for a minute. And, and this is, we're actually going to end with, with the Gemara and Arachin. The Yushalmi, there's a very famous passage in Yushalmi, and in, in the beginning, near the beginning of our parak, asked the question, now that means from the perspective of the Gemara, we saw it in Urava and now we see it in Ushalmi, Arba'akosot is an obligation. Four cups is an obligation. And now the question is, where did the, the rabbis come up with this four cups? And you'll notice conveniently that there are four opinions. Rabbi Yochanan, quoting Rabbi Benayah, which is now the second generation after Rabbi, says the very famous answer that we all know, which is four life phrases of redemption, right? <coughs> Rabbi Shubham Levi, first generation after Rebbe, says, can I get Arba Kosot Shel Paro? Which oh, means right. that in the interaction between Yosef and the butler in jail, <laughs> there's four mentions of Kos Paro. Rabbi Levi, Maybe Shuban Levi's father, unclear. Amar Keneged Arbam Malchuyot. They correspond to the four famous empires that the Jewish people are subjugated to over history. It's part of the whole Sefer Daniel monsters thing. And Rabbanan Amri, and I'll just quickly do Rabbanan, all the other students said, no, there's four cups of punishment that God will force the nations that have hurt Israel to drink at the end of days, cups mm -hmm. of poison. And corresponding to them, there's four cups of consolation he's going to give us. Okay, very nice. So I'm going to ask you, what's the reason for the Arba Kosot? Somebody comes up to you and says, I heard Passover is coming and I see people buying cases of wine. Why do you need all the wine? Ooh, we have four cups. Why do you have four cups? What are you going to answer? Any one of these. <laughs> so I'm going to ask, the, why do we have four cups? <laughs> and I'm going to take you back to the very first thing we saw on source one. The explanations are not the reason for the practice. The practice is the reason for the explanations. 
Okay. Now, parenthetically, because you all have the source sheet, Breshid Rabbi has the same thing, the same four opinions, but they switch the names. Who said what? Same four opinions. By the way, that's not the end of the road here. If there is, second here. Okay. There is in Shmot Rabbah that there were four decrees that Paro decreed against the Jewish people and they're listed in source 22. And corresponding to them, God said four phrases of redemption and corresponding to that, God, the rabbis made four cups. Which means from the perspective of the Yerushalmi and from the perspective of the Midrash, Shmot Rabbah is very late, in like ninth or 10th century. From the perspective of the Midrash, um, there's a phenomenon known as Arba Kosot and they were established to correspond to some historic event, some meta-historic event, some futuristic event that's part of our history or our as yet unrealized history. So which is it? What's the real reason? Why four cups? So bottom line, what is the evening about? Telling the story? More than that. And because we saw it, go back to Philo, go back to Jubilees. Giving over the Masora. Go back to Jubilees, go back to Philo, and go back to Sukim. Singing praise? Singing praise to God. If you take a look at Source 5 here, it's, it's very enlightening. And very enlightening is a, is a, is a uh, superfluous phrase. It's enlightening. Yeshayahu is giving consolation to the king Chizkiyahu about the impending attack of Assyria. He says, Assyria will be beaten. They will not defeat Yerushalayim. Then, Hashir Yelachem Kaleli Kadeshchag. You will sing like the holy night. Um, the holy night? The holy night is Pesach. Unquestionably. Kaleli Kadeshchag is Pesach. And you will sing, meaning singing to God in thanksgiving for this redemption, just like the singing of that night. The singing of Pesach becomes the paradigm to which we compare any other singing. You're going to sing praises like Pesach night. Pesach night is a night of Shira. My father, Shalom, used to refer to Leila Seder as Shira Shirim Shalom Yisrael. The song of songs of the Jewish people. That's Pesach night. Okay. And now, mm-hmm. how do you sing? You sing B'simcha Uvetuv Levav. Here in Tvarim, we're, we're, we're told that when terrible things happen to us, part of the reason is because we did not worship God out of gladness of heart. And what's gladness of heart? Drinking with a cup of wine. What Drinking with a that? cup of wine. What? What Parsha is that? This is in Kitavo. Kitavo. Right? And the Gemara in Arachim that we're going to look at now is going to use this Pasuk also to talk about the significance of rejoicing in praising God and in utilizing wine as part of that. So I want to show you one more pasuk, and then we're going to go to the Gemaran Arachin. It's going to give us everything, and I'll explain how things developed along the way. Verse 4 is from a curious story in the book of Shoftim, and the book of Shoftim is chock full of curious stories. Uh, the, the person who seems to be the most successful of the Shoftim is a fellow named Gidon, who also gets the name Yerubal. Gidon is successful, and Gidon is a hero. Now you like, because when B'nai Israel say to him, please be our king, he says, I won't be your king, my son won't be your king, God is your king. We love the guy. In the meantime, he has a ton of kids, 
and he has one son with a concubine in Shechem. When he dies, the, the son of the concubine, whose name is Avimelech, um, takes a bunch of money from the local Baal temple, Baal Brit, and pays a bunch of lowlifes to go kill all of his brothers. And then he comes to all the people in Shechem and says, eh, wouldn't you rather have one person be your leader than 70? That's how he convinces them to kill his brothers. And then he has them crown him as king. He's the first king in Israel. It's a failure. It, it self-destructs. And after three years, he's killed. Very famous story. He was killed. Uh, Tevates, um, millstone, head, smashed. It's great. Um, but when he first is going to be crowned, the one surviving brother, a kid named Yotam, I don't know if that's his real name, because it's too convenient that it looks like Yatom, an orphan, goes up to the top of Hargrizim. Some of you I know have been there, so you know that it's a natural amphitheater. And he calls out from the top of the mountain to the people in Shechem. And he says, listen to me, and he tells them a story. What's the story? The story is all the trees wanted a king. It was evidently a well-known parable. All the trees wanted a king. So they first went to the olive tree and said, please be our king. And the olive tree said, what, am I all out of my oil that is used to honor man and God? I should be a king. Ah. And so they leave him. And the, the message is quite clear that politics is for losers. People that don't have anything productive to do go into politics. Okay, we understand that. So then they go to the fig tree. And the fig tree says, am I all of my sweet juice that, that is you know, so tasty? Same thing. They come to the grapevine. And the grapevine says, Right here, source four. Am I all out of my wine? That elates God and man. And I'm going to be a thing. So, okay, they leave. It doesn't work. They go to the thorn bush. Take a look in source in chapter nine. It's an interesting story. What do we mean that it elates God and man? So the Talmud here, and it shows up in a couple places, has the following drasha. Amar Shmav Shmua Bar Nachmani, Amar Rabbi Yonatan at the bottom. Minayin she'enu mim shira el al hayayin. How do we know that when we sing to God, it's we sing with wine? Now the original context of this means that when they have to pour wine on the mizbeach with the korban tamid, that's the moment that the Levim sing their daily psalm. They sing it when the wine is being poured. Eno mim shira el al hayayin. Okay. But this is a broader statement, which is whenever we thank God, we do it by singing with wine. How do we know that? Shinamar, and they quote our pasuk. The, the vine says, am I all out of my wine that elates God and man? I understand that elates man. How does it elate God? You see that you only sing with wine, meaning it elates God because we use wine to sing praises to God, which makes God happy. Beautiful image. So now let's roll back and see what's going on. This evening is an evening of Thanksgiving. It's abundantly clear. It's clear from the Haggadah and it's clear from the history of it. And it's clear from every, all, the, all the environment of it. It's an evening of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Is it purely Yitzhak Mitzrayim? Is it for all Jewish history? Is it for unrealized Jewish history? Okay, but it's, it's an evening of Thanksgiving. And it's an evening of singing and therefore wine is a central motif. So let's take a look at the Seder and see what's going on. Originally, we have a cup of wine at the beginning, which is there because you've got to make Kiddush, you got to have wine. Yes, That's easy, right? You've got to make Kiddush, it's wine. 
you're going to have a meal and then you're going to bench. You have to have a cup of wine. That's built in. And you're also going to be singing Hallel. So that's another cup of wine. And we don't want to ever think about it. You ever been to a Shevrachas? You ever been to Shevrachas? Okay. What happens at the table when they come to bench at Shevrachas? What do you see happen in front of the guy benching? They put two cups. Why do they put two cups? One for benching, one for Shevrachas. Why not just choose one cup? Because ain't osi mitzvot chavilot chavilot. We don't go cheap on mitzvot. We don't turn, we don't try to use one object for two mitzvot. Right? It's actually something in Parakarvi Psachim. Right? We we don't use one object for two mitzvot. We use one cup of wine for Kiddush or for benching and one cup of wine for Shavabracha. Right? Good. We so that that's why. And the one for benching, the the the, the Mavarich holds, and the one for Shavabracha rotates around the table as they give it to each person, and then right? Okay. So we're not going to take one cup of wine and let's say, just before the end of the meal, say Hallel and bench on it. Two separate things. But Hallel itself, as you can see, both from the Mishnah and the Tosefta, was always broken up into two parts. It was broken up into the beginning part, which is a Machloka Pechamit Hill, how much to say, which focuses on Yitziat Mitzrayim. And then there's the whole bigger part of Hallel, which seems to be about all of Jewish history, about Mashiach, about other things. So it's fairly straightforward that you have a cup of wine before the meal, which is for Hallel, and a cup of wine after the meal, which is for Hallel. For Hallel, after bed, fourth one, for Hallel, right? So, so that you got it. Now watch what happens. What happens if we don't know how to say hollow at our table? Oh. What did we say you do? You go to shul. And then what will happen in shul? And what if we go back and forth? They're going to do the whole hollow. Of course, I'm not going to bring wine into shul. So what will I do when I go home? Have two cups. I can have two cups, which proves to me that I can drink the four cups at one shot. That's what that Yerushalmi was saying. Right? In other words... What we see is that we can attenuate the wine from the halal if need be, and therefore the wine stands alone. But originally, this is in the times of the Gemara, where like Rabbi says, there's a mitzvah of Arba Kosot. Where did the Arba Kosot come from? But let's go back. Remember that Tosefta doesn't mention Arba Kosot. It says, Kos Rishon, and that's all it says. It says you have to give me enough for four cups because you functionally need them. But Arba Kosot is a mitzvah doesn't show up in the, in the Mishnah of the Tosefta. Because what is really happening, what's really happening is we're singing to God. And when we sing to God, we have to raise a cup. It breaks down into four sections. So we have four cups. Once we have four cups, what do we do? Four phrases of Gula, four cups of Paro in the dream, four Malchiot, four cups of punishment. We bring all the symbolism, but the symbolism comes after the four cups have become uh, a fixed unit, which didn't exist before. And the best proof is Rabbi Tarfan says, oh, but if we add halal gadol, we're going to have a fifth cup. Why not? It's a separate halal. We need a fifth cup. We don't do that in practice. Because in practice, we follow the development of the Gemara to say the four cups have become a standardized unit. The Arba Kosot. But they didn't start that way. So now you have something interesting um, that is asked about the halal. We're going to end with this question is asked, how come we don't make a bracha 
on Hallel at the table. You ever think about that? Every time you say Hallel, you say Bracha. Oh, yeah. Why don't you say a Bracha? At the table. So very famously, Rav Haigon, who was the last of the great of the Gonim, he died in 1038, Rav Haigon in a tshuva, in a responsum, asked the question, and he says, Halal Pesach evening doesn't have a bracha, that's what we do. And then he quotes Rav Amon Rav Tzemach, earlier Goni, who say, So what's the reason we don't say bracha on halal? You split it up. You split it up. When are you going to say the bracha? You can't say the bracha at the beginning because you're only going to say two chapters. And you can't say the bracha after benching because you're not starting it anymore. Okay, very nice. Rav Haigon himself um, ba -ba -bum, says um, so that gives you your reason for those who do say halal and shul. Oh, we're going to get that. We're going to get that. No, no, but, but you say the bracha. Those who uh -huh. Exactly. We're gonna get because you're saying the whole thing. So Rav Haigon in a in the tshuva here says, how come I can't find it? Um, he says that because we're not saying halal that night, um, ba -ba -bum, um, okay, I, well, I know what he says. I, I'm sorry, I don't know why I, why I cut it out. He says, because we're not saying Hallel that night as reading Hallel, we're saying it as Omer Shira. We're saying um, Hallel that night as singing. It's as if to say that Hallel, every day that we say in Shul, every time we say Hallel in Shul, we're saying Hallel like a reading, a formal reading. So it has a bracha. But Hallel that we say on, um, oh, here it is, sorry. It's Ain 24 the second. Here it is, here it is, here it is. In other words, we're saying it as spontaneously bursting forth in song on page 27 at 1052. But that's, so as a result, it's shira, therefore it, there's no bracha attached, not a formal reading. That's his explanation. However, watch this wild thing. Masachat Sofrim, that we saw last week in the context, remember, of Megillah, the Minigaris mm -hmm. Israel to read Megillah at night over two Saturday nights. Remember that? So Masachat Sofrim, which again represents Minigaris Israel, <clears throat> says the following. Mitzvah mina muvchar likrot halel b'shnei leilot shel galiyot ulevarech alen ulaomran b'neima. Right? Masachat Sofrim, although it reflects Minigaris Israel, was likely finished in Italy. So it reflects two days Yom Tov, etc., Right, and it said that you should say um, halal on the two nights of Galuyot and to make a bracha on them. When do you say halal at night on Pesach? At the meal, and say the bracha. Let us praise God together. When you say halal at home, you don't have to make a bracha. Why? Because you already made a bracha in shul. Because what's the assumption of Masachat Sofrim? 
Not just like the Tosefta said, if people don't know, then they should go to Shul and read it. By that time, what's the custom? Everybody says it in Shul after Mari. That, by the way, is Minhag of Anshay Sfarad, it's Minhag of Hasidim, and it's Minhag throughout Eretz Israel. We say Halal and Shul after Mariv on Pesach night with a bracha. And he says, that's why you don't make a bracha at the table. You already made a bracha on Halal, which means the, bra- the Halal at home is like an extension of the Halal and Shul. And so here it's Shira, and you need a cup for, the sh- for each, of the, each of the Shirot. All right. Um, and by the way, the Ritva points out that his teacher, the Ra'ol, even though people weren't, weren't happy with it, in the town of Sarkosta, he, was, he made the custom that people should say Halal and Shul. And we're going to end with this beautiful tour. The tour, and the tour, by the way, is, is, is just wonderfully situated to really tell us about Halakha because he grew up in Germany. His father was the Rosh, the biggest rabbi in Germany. And his father was exiled and went to Spain and Rabbi Yaakov, the young man, went with him. And so he has both Ashkenaz and Sfard right there. And he writes, Now watch how he says it and watch how things have turned. We started from, you say howl at home. There's no mention of a bracha. And if you don't know how to say howl at home, go to Shul and have somebody read it for you. Kind of like the villagers with Megillah. And then it got to the point where everybody should go to Shul and say Hallel. And you don't have to say a bracha afterwards because you already said it. Now watch what it says a few hundred years later. Look how we've come full circle. In order to make sure that we don't have the problem of saying the bracha at the Seder, they say it with a bracha in Shul, and that solves the problem. In other words, We've gone from reading Halal and Shul as a necessity for people who don't know it, to Halal and Shul as a beautiful custom, to Halal and Shul as a solution to a halachic problem of, I'm not going to make the bracha at the Seder, so this way I say Halal with a bracha. What we've done over the past hour and two minutes is we took a look at, I, I started by talking about the difference between cut practices and reasons. And I pointed out Friedman's point here, Ishalom's point here about that, that the custom always leads to the reasoning, not vice versa. Kurt had his astute comment about, and we and this thing which between the right and the Rabbanon in this, and Minhag. And then we took a look at the fact that up until the Churban Beit HaMikdash, the only descriptions we get of Lelha Seder is an evening of, of singing and of praise, and that seems to be the central piece. Um, when we get to the Mishnah, we see that, that the entire structure of the evening is structured with four cups, meaning each cup signals another point in the evening, right? And, um, and then we saw this whole thing about reading the Hall and Shul, and we took, took a look at the Gemara, and we saw that by the time of the Gemara, our Bach will sort of become a phenomenon, an obligation that you have to fulfill. And the question is, can you fulfill it with this kind of wine or that kind of wine? Can you fulfill it if you drink them all at once? Etc. And so the suggestion was made, but then we saw that Rabbi Tarfon suggested the possibility of a fifth cup, which means that four cups as a unit may not be as strong as we think it is. So we saw, so the suggestion made was that all of these explanations for why there's four cups are all after the fact. Once there's four cups, and why are there four cups? Because originally there were four different points in the meal that needed wine, because we only sing with wine. 
And then even so then once that happened, it developed into a unit called the four cups to the point where if you don't even need them because you're saying how and Shul, you still drink four cups. See what happens? If you go to Shul and say all of hollow because you don't know how to read it and you come home and don't say how you still drink four cups because four cups became a unit. They became a, 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 their own obligation. And once they're their own obligation, then we have all the beautiful explanations of the four uh, statements. I'm going to end with giving a quick explanation of this Midrash. And, uh, and then we saw how reading Howell and Shul went from a necessity to a, form, to a nice custom to a solution to a halachic problem. Just one last comment here about this Midrash in Source 19. Uh, it's in the Yerushalmi and it's also in Breshit Rabbah. Um, the same idea, four different opinions about why there's four cups, which is really elegant. Four reasons for four cups, you know, it's great. And each one of the, one of the is the Chacham's reason, one is the Rashad's reason, and I'm sure we could figure out four political parties too. But um, the famous one, which is the four phrases of Gula, very simple explanation. Now, again, the Drushim come after the customs. There's a practice of four cups. Now, what does each person take away from it? And it's important to note that at no point in a discussion like that does anybody ever say, you're wrong, I got the right explanation, because they're not doing that. They're not saying, I know the reason. They're saying, here's another lesson you can learn from this. So Biochanan says, what are we celebrating this evening? We're celebrating Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So we have to go to the four phrases of, of, re of redemption. Rabbi Yeshuvan Levi says, true, but we have to figure out why we got in Mitzrayim in the first place. How did we get there in the first place? We got there because we sold Yosef. So we find four mentions of the cup of Paro in the story of Yosef. Rabbi Levi comes along and says, yes, but we're not just celebrating Yitzhak Mitzrayim. We're celebrating salvation from all enemies. After all, the central paragraph, So therefore he says the four cups represent the four evil empires that we're going to outlive and survive. And Rabbanan say, very nice. <coughs> this evening we're celebrating all of Jewish history, including Jewish history that hasn't happened yet, including Mashiach. We open the door, Eliyahu comes in, and Mashiach arrives, and we're in Yerushalayim. And therefore he says the four cups represent four cups that in the future God is going to use to poison the nations that have affected us and corresponding to that four cups of consolation that he'll give to us. Ooh. And it's, I've gone four minutes over. So uh, well, right. what, what fits in it, Rav Schwab, always 